is Thursday and I hope you are thirsty for some unbossed because I'm gonna bring it for you in place of Nina Turner. Yes, she is out today, but don't worry, we are gonna hold this down. So do not forget on your end, I'm gonna need you to subscribe, share the stream, send some love in the comments. Let me hear your voice because you know I cannot, cannot live without them. Also, who else can I not live without? Well, none other than TYT contributor Dan Evans. What's up, Dan? So good to be with you. I'm just gonna let people believe that um, you're my older sister because like I love you that much in this space. So that's, I'm just so cool to do a show with you, yeah. Yeah, like older by like two months, but whatever. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> All right, well, we've got so many hot topics to cover and I'm excited to be covering them with Dan from the internet. So let's go ahead and head to the hill where Republicans are busy protecting corporate interests. How dare you lecture America about fiscal responsibility. When the record shows that Democrats are the party of job creation and reducing deficits and Republicans are the party of tax cuts for the wealthy, the well off and the well connected and exploding the deficit. So we're not gonna stand here and allow you to lecture us about fiscal responsibility. What this is, is an effort to try to extract deep painful cuts on everyday Americans. Yes, that is right. That's Hakeem Jeffries, a leader for the Dems. And he's kind of upset and with good reason because the Republicans are once again really showing their hate and disdain for the working class people and their love for the rich. They passed what many are calling a debt ceiling scam. Yes, debt ceiling scam. This is economic sabotage as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they are also titling it the official title, the Limit Save Grow Act. It was unveiled last week by House Republicans and it was voted on yesterday. And here's what you should know about it. The House GOP bill would raise the federal government's arbitrary borrowing limit, averting a first ever default that would be catastrophic for the US and global economies. The legislation would also cap spending over the next decade, impose fossil fuel friendly energy policies, restrict regulations, add work requirements for social programs, block President Joe Biden's contested student debt relief plan, and repeal IRS funds intended to reduce tax dodging. Yeah, basically do everything that would stifle the working class people and that the Dems do not want. Yeah, that's right, cutting off services. Also, the reality is that it narrowly passed the House by a 217 to 215 margin, check that out. Four Republicans, they had the courage to join Dems. That's Representative Andy Biggs, Arizona, Ken Buck, Colorado, Tim Burchett, Tennessee, and even Mr. Matt Gates didn't want it. But who knows, he may have voted against it because it was against some kind of what minor trafficking. But I'll just leave that at that. Anyway, well, the response to the bill has really been kind of not so good in terms of the left, for good reason, not so good, of course. For instance, the Earth Justice Vice President Raul Garcia argued this. It's not a serious proposal, but instead a litany of damaging policies aimed at sacrificing the health and safety of our communities and catering to polluting industries. It's shameful that McCarthy and House Republicans are willing to hold our economy hostage, force the federal government into default and sacrifice the creation of countless jobs in their districts at the behest of their corporate donors. 
Ain't that some truth right there? And also, who else was tweeting truth? Well, it's the Americans for Tax Fairness. Check out what they said. Breaking, House Republicans just voted to pass McCarthy's debt ceiling disaster. Cutting Medicaid, SNAP, Veterans Care, Social Security Administration funding, child care and more while protecting tax breaks for the wealthy and the LLCs, shame. Yeah, that's right, it's an absolute and incredible shame. And of course, it was called out and swiftly. But before we get to those call outs, well, actually no, let's go ahead and hit them up. Because I know that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is not going to have this bill. It's a bill that might as well be called the Default on America Act, because that's exactly what it is. D-O-A, dead on arrival. Republicans default on America Act would mean fewer jobs, higher costs, leaving policemen, first responders, border patrol, our vets hanging out to dry. Yes, all the people that Republicans say that they fully support, of course, we know their lip service. And I cannot wait to get to Dan's thoughts. But before we get there, let's see what McCarthy had to say in response to Schumer. You said at the very beginning we had to show you a plan, even though the Democrats have shown no plan. Not only did we show you a plan, we're the only ones to pass a plan. So I think it's up to you now. Whether the economy goes in any trouble, it's you. Because the Republicans raised the debt limit. You have not, neither has Schumer. Yeah, McCarthy should know you don't get points by simply passing a plan if it's going to hurt the vast majority of Americans. I I don't know, Dan, am I missing something? You're missing nothing. Kevin McCarthy must think we have really, really shallow memories because he's coming from the party that uses the debt ceiling as a political vehicle in order to get what they want, which is austerity for the working class, taking away benefits that are needed, especially at a time when cost of living is increasing at a rapid rate. And then increasingly giving more gains and more benefits to the already ultra wealthy elite who are in the in this country. So to me, Kevin McCarthy's usual sort of play by going, oh, look, we're Republicans, we're trying to be fiscal conservative, it's I'm actually, I'll give him credit on one thing. I'll give his party credit on one thing. They've spent the other days of this year talking about banning books and going against LGBTQ plus people and all these other weird culture war issues. And then they picked one day to do a bill. So it's really rich for anyone, especially on the Republican side, especially Kevin McCarthy to say, oh well, now it's time for the Democrats to do some legislating and some work. There would be no, there'd be nothing going on in this country right now, like legislatively positive if it weren't for what little wins Democrats are able to get here and there. Yes, and those wins seem to be very little, and also they don't come very often. But people are really paying attention to this. Thank God it is going to be DOA when it comes to the Senate. But let's really look at this, because we know that the House is still going to try, the Republicans in the House are still gonna try some stuff. Because their grand plan of slashing a variety of programs for Americans is very clear, check this out. So Limit, Save, Grow Act, this is what it cuts. Kicks millions of healthcare. It kicks millions off healthcare, excuse me, allows wealthy to cheat taxes, guts veteran benefits, blocks student loan forgiveness, cut food assistance, meals on wheels, shrink cancer research, slashes opioid treatment. It does everything we don't need in the United States. And yet, like Republicans say, it's it's all for the best for the people, fiscal responsibility. And just as a reminder, it also takes a big hunk at Medicaid. And we know that that plays a critical role in various, for various portions 
of the population in the US. Check out this chart here. We know a lot of people would get hurt. This is how significant Medicaid is for a number of people in their lives. Check out that, that graph there, that, that is the American people. That is people in need. And yet we continue to ask ourselves, why is it that there are so many representatives who are supposed to be protecting the interests of the people, really out here just harming the people? And we know that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked those same questions. 10 years. So instead of looking at climate and instead of looking at cuts to health care, we should examine why our colleagues in the Republican Party is so invested in protecting the wealthiest people in this society and would rather attack health care and services for our veterans than repealing tax cuts for yacht owners and private jets. Well, the only answer I have for her is because the wealthy are the ones that bought those Republicans into office. And they bought them their seats, so I'm sure that's why they want the return on their investment. Any final thoughts, Dan? No, you're 100% right there in your analysis. That's why you're so wise in these things. But the, I'm glad that AOC is calling these things out because if there weren't a bunch of Republicans in office who were, um, you know, fighting all these different things that would help the working class and putting forth all these things that would help rich people. Uh, it would be a lot of Democrats who would be coming across the line as well. Too many Democrats who would also be defending a lot of these things too. Not as bad as the Republicans, but too many and it's important to keep an eye on them as well. Yeah, we definitely need to keep an eye on the Republicans just about everywhere in the nation. And that's completely and totally true. And particularly right now, people are keeping an eye on the Republicans in Montana. Because yesterday there was a historic moment in Montana's house where a representative Zoe Zephyr ended up facing consequences that no one has in over 50 years. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana, including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize what he is, uh, on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He is asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community. And I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. Representative Zoe Zephyr's words were not enough to save her by a vote of 68 to 3. Well, Montana Republicans barred the first trans lawmaker from the House floor, all because she spoke truth to power and let them know that they would have blood on their hands for the laws that they were passing that limit the rights, options, and opportunities of members in the trans community. Here's a clip of what she had said that got her into this situation. Then the only thing I will say is if, I, if you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Yeah, 
wasn't raising her voice, wasn't screaming, wasn't stomping or anything. The simple statement of letting them know they'd have blood on their hands, which is very realistic. Well, here is the punishment that the Republicans imposed upon Zephyr. Under the terms of the punishment, Zephyr will still be able to vote remotely, but will be unable to participate in debates on the floor for the remainder of the 90 day legislative session. The Democratic representative had been forbidden from speaking for the past week over her comments, which Republicans said violated decorum. Yes, because if we know anything, it's how old school cis head white Republicans really want to continue to push this decorum narrative. This is absolutely disgusting. And also it is somewhat historic because the punishment for Zephyr, it has never been, it has not been thrown down in nearly 50 years in Montana for lawmakers. So this says a lot that simply Zephyr identifying the fact that these individuals, these lawmakers will have the blood of trans children and people on their hands if they pass this legislation. That was enough to get her booted from being able to share her voice and do her job on behalf of her electorate. Well, Zephyr's punishment has really ignited a debate, a firestorm as far as I'm concerned in terms of using our voices in democracy, especially as it comes right after we just saw Tennessee State House act a fool and expel those two black lawmakers, representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, who who have since been readmitted. Now, Representative Zephyr released this statement after being banned from the debate. And she had some very poignant words to say. Among it, she had said this, though the Republican supermajority has voted to strip me of my ability to partake in debate, I remain steadfast in my commitment to my community. I will continue to make the difficult moral choices to stand up for the people who entrusted me with their representation. Very wise. Also, as you can see from this tweet here, as Zephyr was closing out her day, she pressed her light to speak as she left the chambers, symbolizing the voices of those that will not be heard because of her being left out of debate. Dan. You know, it's a shame because um, Zoe Zephyr is really the best of us, the best of what we want politicians to be, the best of what we want people who are fighting for those who don't have a voice to be. This is this is like what people, especially on Senator Nina Turner's show, this is what we love to see in office. What's absolutely shameful are the actions that, like you said, echoed from the Tennessee lawmakers just a couple of weeks ago. But now we're seeing very clearly, it's free speech for me, not for thee. It's decorum for me, not for thee. It's we get to talk about um, how you're destroying the family and you're t- we have to take up guns because it's that much of a danger, but you don't get to softly speak about how the laws that are being passed on a state level have real world consequences for trans adults and trans youth. I'm so happy that Zoe Zephyr like has that platform and what we saw from Tennessee, these things don't usually shut people like this up. It only gives them a larger platform that even if they can't have power where they are, they can still express that in social media and culture more broadly. And hopefully she's back in office somehow coming with a whole stick of justice waiting to proverbially politically hit them with. Absolutely, because the thing is we need people's voices. We need individuals to rise up and to speak out. And it also really shows you when you see the juxtaposition about what happened to the Justins in Tennessee and what's happening to Zoe out in Montana. The fact is it doesn't matter if you raise your voice, you scream and you use a bullhorn. It doesn't matter if you are meek and quiet and kind and polite in your words. Your existence in these white male cishet dominated spaces is enough 
to rattle the consciousness of the Republicans around you. And that is the problem, your sheer existence. But my God, you should stay there, be there, be loud, and we need to join them in that fight. Amen. We'll have more for you after this break. Welcome back to Unboss, Adrian Lawrence holding it down for Senator Nina Turner. And I hope y'all are holding down the memberships. That's right, since our first broadcast in 2002. Well, TYT has been a force in digital media, bringing you positive progressive change. And so you need to get into the game. Every membership makes a monumental impact. So definitely join the drive and drive some positive change, tyt.com slash join. And also with May approaching, we got some May Day. That's right, we got in some exciting times going on all across the nation. Workers begun the counter offensive. So in this new era of labor organization, this May 1st, join Anna Kasparian, John Iderola, Senator Nina Turner, and Francesca Fiorentini for our live May Day special. That's right, Monday, May 1st, starting at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific. And well, if you got some time, and even if you don't, head over to Barnes and Nobles. That's right, justice is coming. Jank Uger's new book, go ahead and pre-order that. Get 25% off your purchase. That's right, of justice is coming from April 26th through April 28th. That is tomorrow at bn.com. All you gotta do is use a coupon code pre-order 25. And you definitely always have to check out the podcast. That's right, and Boss needs you to hear our voices on the daily. Go ahead and go to Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcast. Search for Unboss, click follow, and also hit us with a five star rating because I'm gonna hit you with the five star rating, especially Speed Racer, who had to say, Adrian and Dan, great subs for the senator. Thank you. I'd like to concur. Out on Twitch, Jalen says, all rise, court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Adrian Lawrence presiding, hello. On YouTube in the super chat, Martinez Mac has Adrian and Dan, let's get it. Yes, that's right, and I can dig it, thank you so much. Uh, but something I really can't seem to dig is the Supreme Court not wanting to have ethics. And this is again, not a partisan issue. We see the Supreme Court at its lowest ever polling in terms of people viewing it with legitimacy. And God, I, I did not think when I first was elected to the Senate that so much of the work we would be doing would be focusing on how to protect our democracy and our democratic institutions. We cannot allow our court to further lose its legitimacy. And we have an obligation to address these issues. And it should be done in an open forum in a hearing. Yeah, Senator Cory Booker is not wrong. And he's also none too pleased, particularly with Chief Justice John Roberts, who has refused to testify before Congress. Check out this headline here from the Washington Post. Yeah, that's right. Chief Justice Roberts declines to testify on Supreme Court ethics. This is not a good look. The Judiciary Committee chairman had invited Roberts in to talk about it and give some transparency. Because hey, as we've seen over the recent weeks, Justice Clarence Thomas has been caught cuddling up to a billionaire doing side deals that seem to be pretty convenient. And then also Neil Gorsuch earlier this week, I, I covered that issue on Overruled. He's also been profiting from some questionable financial deals with some very important people in law. So what is going on here and why won't Justice Roberts sit down and talk about it? Because the lack of accountability has left many, many furious. Let's see what else the Washington Post got for us. 
Yes, Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. told Senate leaders Tuesday that he would respectfully decline to testify at a Senate hearing focused on the Supreme Court, offering instead a statement signed by all the justices in which they reaffirm and restate foundational ethics, principles, and practices to which they abide. That's so interesting because it's like the Judiciary Committee had sent them an evite and they responded with a no as opposed to maybe and yes, like get out of here. You would like to think maybe a subpoena could be involved, you know, separation of powers be damned. But still, the fact is that we got a problem here. And even though the Republicans staunchly defend the US Supreme Court, given that they have the conservative majority, we also know there is a possible bipartisan push going on because people, again, are none too happy about the court's self governance. And we know it could lead to a deadlock with no accountability or change. Back to the post. Roberts' refusal to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee or engage with their calls for an ethics code specific to the Supreme Court angered many Democrats who accused the Chief Justice of having a blind spot when it comes to the public's declining approval ratings for the court. I guess those blind spots are what, maybe a symptom, product, byproduct of what, having a lifetime appointment? And by virtue of the fact that you know that Congress could never muster the collective courage to remove any of those justices. So their jobs are locked in, who's gonna have to say anything to them? That's what I'd like to think is going on. Anyways, many are upset and rightfully so. You wrote this long lawyerly letter with three pages of, and it was to me the key phrase was, we'll follow the substance of the rules. No, <laughs> it should be, we'll follow the rules. And here's what they are, and and they could have easily said he could have easily said yes, we're going to adopt a code of ethics, or they don't even have to do much drafting. They could do it in a weekend. All they got to do is take the existing canon of ethics for federal judges, and apply it to themselves about disclosure. The key here's the key phrase though, and I remember learning this many years ago. The key phrase for judges is that judges should avoid impropriety. And the appearance of impropriety. Yeah, well, impropriety has been all over their faces for some time now, as far as I'm concerned, which is why we do not have confidence in the court. Dan, where is your confidence so far? It hasn't been the political system for a moment, which is why I was chuckling a little bit at Cory Booker in the beginning, going, Never did I imagine that we would have such a crisis of legitimacy in my time serving. Possible, but we didn't get here for no reason, Corey. So that's all I'm kind of saying here. But he's not the smoke here, it's the Supreme Court because this goes into a larger thing. Nothing is ide- nothing is free of ideology. And one of, in fact, the better lessons you taught me, especially about the law, is that legal interpretation has its own biases. It has its own ways in which ideology can unfortunately creep through it. And it's not always, it's like there's a lot of precedent and good work that's done in the legal space, of course. But when you have a situation where the Supreme Court that has lifetime appointments in a broader context where people don't have a lot of confidence in our political system, whether it's the president or the Congress, the Supreme Court was supposed to be above all of this. That's kind of the ideology going back into that earlier thing around the Supreme Court. Tie that into the Republicans going, Oh well, even though the Constitution is supposed to be updated, we believe that the version that fits our political ideology, which happens to be the originalist version of constitutional originalism, works for our political agenda of basically making it so white cis men have as much power as possible. So, because I agree with that last statement there, I believe it was Angus King saying, you need to at least at bare minimum 
have people trust in this final process of legal review that the Supreme Court is. Otherwise, there's no trust in the system. They're not gonna find it in the presidency left or right, and they're not gonna find it in Congress. So you have much bigger issues of a country that we need to address for sure. Absolutely, the lack of legitimacy could be democracy's downfall, especially when there are so much doubts in every other branch of the federal government. It's it's incredibly disturbing and very, very scary, which is why we actually need meaningful change. And so after Roberts told essentially Congress to go ahead and pound sand, well, King and also Lisa Markowski, well, they introduced a new bill. This has just happened yesterday. Yes, that's right. The first bipartisan stance on the Justice Thomas situation. King put this out on their site, essentially creating a code of conduct, something that needs to be in place. And this is what the post said. The King-Markowski bill would require the Supreme Court to create its own code of conduct for justices, which already exist for other federal judges. It would also require the court to publish that code, appoint someone to hear complaints about potential violations and mandate an annual report on such investigations and actions taken in response. In other words, a bill would require the court to impose an ethical code on itself. And while I think that that is cute and all, I don't think that that is the way to go about it. I think we need to come up with a code. Congress needs to come up with a code, somebody other than the courts itself. And then you have to have an external body doing the policing of that behavior. There should be reports that have to be issued. Just like we know that these justices are supposed to disclose certain transactions, which Gorsuch and Thomas did not do. There should be some oversight body to hold them in line. My God, if we continue this whole narrative of no one's above the law, why don't we start acting like it and start imposing some legal restrictions on these individuals in government, especially if they have lifetime jobs and six figure salaries? Dan, any final thoughts? Three last words, checks and balances, we need them. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I don't even think we use checks anymore. So Venmo and balances, <laughs> but whatever it is, make it happen. Venmo and uh, no more negative balances, please. We're hurting out here. <laughs> girl, it would be like cash app and balances. But anyway, we're sticking with the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, there is something going on right now in terms of an issue before the court that actually has the conservative and the liberal justices given the side eye. It's a heartbreaking case. Check out this headline from Forbes. That's right, 94 year old grandmother fights back after government sold her home and kept the profit. Yeah, yeah, you read that right. The Washington Post has the deets. So in Hennepin County, which contains Minneapolis, foreclosed on Geraldine Tyler's one bedroom condo after she moved into an apartment building for the elderly and stopped paying property taxes for five years. The move was good for her peace of mind, but not for her pocketbook. She couldn't keep up with the bills for both places and by 2015 had accrued $2,311 in unpaid property taxes on the condo plus interest costs and penalties. Here's a photo of the 94 year old Geraldine Tyler who probably had to move out of her home and into a condo because of accessibility issues and the fact that this is what happens when you get older. But what shouldn't happen is the system selling your home and keeping the profit. She owed about $15,000 in taxes and penalties. The county sold her condo for $40,000 and kept the surplus. As the law allows in Minnesota, the District of Columbia and about a dozen other states. So now the Supreme Court is determining whether the county keeping the profit from the sale violates a constitutional ban on the government taking private property without fair compensation. You know, just like how they can't just roll up and take your home and then not compensate you fairly for it. Well, a Washington lawyer who happens to be representing 
Hennepin County, uh, name is Neil Katyal. Well, he was grilled. That's right, grilled by the justices. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan asked the question many of us are thinking. Are there any limits to this? I mean, $5,000 tax debt, $5 million house. Take the house, don't get back the rest. Come on, how is this anything different as far as I'm concerned than when you have property that is confiscated by police and never given back? Yeah, well, Pacific Legal Foundation lawyer Christina Martin responded to the court's question with Pacific Legal. Christina Martin said the bigger picture here was whether there is a limit on how much the government could keep. And the answer is there is none. So again, if you have maybe a $20 million home and a $5,000 tax, the government could sell it and keep all the money? Come on now. At the end of the argument, both justices, conservative and liberal, seem to be very focused on the fact that this is not okay. Dan, do you think this is okay? Yes, no, no, no. <laughs> It'd be so funny. I do love having like um, off the beaten path takes to make like a larger point, but no, this is one rare time where I'm against private corporations and major banks um, doing shady deals and reverse like uh, mortgages to, um, or sorry. You know, those like things that happened in 2008, right? I'm against when shady private institutions do things to take people's houses that are way beyond what they need to do. I'm of course against when the government does it as well. There's absolutely no reason for the government to go, oh, we made a profit on this, even though this is just someone in the working class who's like retired, even. Uh, 90 years old, right? There's no need for the government to take all this money and then not provide any sort of services for this person. It's ridiculous that we live in a society that allows this on the public or private level. So at least we're handling on the public level. Yeah, and the thought is also too, we have to realize this woman is from an extremely marginalized community. She's 94 years old, she's also black. You saw her there pictured in a wheelchair. This individual doesn't have the access and means necessarily to address all of the issues that may come in terms of taxation or whatnot. And our nation, our states, they do not put in truly the work to take care of their people. So if there isn't some kind of checks and balances, at the court in the judicial level to check this almost capitalistic state-like approach to its people, then what's to stop them? This is insanely wrong. And I also think that this is something that could befall both demographics, whether it's Republican or it's Democrat. And I think that that's also what the court recognizes that as a matter of justice and fairness, we need to cap the state's ability to take all of the profits from the sale of a property where maybe you fell back on the taxes. But then again, those are just my thoughts. And I do have other thoughts, mainly that Marjorie Taylor Greene is an absolute whack job. She somehow has a bunch of seats on committees though. Also, I'd like to point out by, by the emojis by your name here, it looks like you're more of a political activist than anything. Uh, clearly, unfortunately, you think Ukraine comes before the United States. I'm not sure what the black flex is. I mean, it's, is that digital blackface? Um, but congratulations on graduating from school. Uh, but I'd like to know. No, go it is about honoring black. Ms. Weingarten, I reclaim my time. I didn't ask you a question. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to go ahead and handle an impact on COVID-19 on schools hearing by focusing on some tweets. It's just, it's ridiculous, her bringing up the social media beef. And at the beginning of that clip, she was talking about, 
I saw that you liked a post about me being suspended from Twitter. It was just, it was it was really pathetic, but also it was very Marjorie Taylor Greene. And of course, Greene couldn't just leave it there in terms of her questioning of the president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten. No, Greene had to go a little bit further and a lot lower. You a mother. I am a mother by marriage. By marriage, I see. Um, and and my wife is here with me, so I'm really glad that she's here. Rather our, Sharon Ms. Swinegarden, I reclaim my time. I didn't ask you a question. Sorry. What I'd like to talk about is your recommendations to the CDC as not a medical doctor, not a biological mother, um, and, and really not a teacher either. You had no business advising the CDC what the medical guidelines were for school closures. Because now we have a nation of school children who have suffered because of it. The problem is, is people like you need to admit that you're just a political activist, not a teacher, not a mother, and not a medical doctor. Wow, that was really special. Um, the attacks, really? I'm not, you know what? I kind of like to think that Weingarten got in her position as the president of the American Federation of Teachers because she had some sense of knowledge about how teaching, education, schooling works. But you know what? What do I know? I'm sure MTG has all of the intel. Um, I definitely know that she did not necessarily know when to stop with the rhetoric and the attacks on Weingarten because she decided to then go after the woman's parental status. I, I just want to make just make note that um, the the decorum of the attacks on the witness were unacceptable that the general lady from Georgia just did. And so it'd be nice if we didn't attack the witnesses, um, particularly whether or whether, and making a decision about whether or not she's a mother. You are a mother. Thank you for, for, for being a great parent. Thank you. Yeah, um, that was Representative Robert Garcia of California, who had to defend um, Weingarten after MTG unleashed an absolutely insane attack on her. By chance, we happen to have that video. Uh, it looks like we missed out on it, which is unfortunate. But uh, you could definitely catch it on Overruled. I covered it and it launched earlier today. Uh, but one thing that definitely launched into defense was Representative Maxwell Alejandro Frost. Yeah, that's right, from Florida. He put it bluntly, calling out this clown show for what it is. In today's hearing, Republicans on this committee are attempting to paint the American Federation of Teachers as a destructive specialist interest group um, out to harm students. They are not. This is personal for me. My mother's been a public school educator for 37 years, teaching special education. She actually retires this year. And this is rich. It's, it's ironic, um, and it has no one fooled. This is to distract from the real sp special interest group that is the real threat to children all across this country, the NRA. Yeah, thankfully, uh, Maxwell Frost was there to really just say what the score is. Because our teachers have been under attack considerably over the last few years, particularly with the pandemic. And yet they have been the heroes, the ones showing up, doing the work, and continuing to be a part of leading our next generation, even though they have been under attacked and undermined. And speaking of under attacked and undermined, even though we weren't able to show you the clip earlier where Marjorie Taylor Greene essentially attacks wine garden saying that she's not a real mother because she is a stepmother. Well, I could tell you that Frost wasn't a fan of it at all. And if we could put up his tweet here, 
We know he went to Twitter and he said, my mom and dad adopted me at birth and they are my parents. F you and your bigoted questions, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, that's right. He stood up, he sounded off both in the hearing and outside of it. And it was powerful and impactful. But the question is, will it even resonate with Green and the Republicans, Dan? Not unlikely because Marjorie Taylor Green is, there's so many thoughts out of that. I'm gonna try to keep them as compact as possible. I, I loved how she was throwing out all these. It looks like you're just a political um, activist. It looks like you're just X, Y, and Z, you don't have much experience. I've known of Randy Weingarten's name in the educational space since when I was a political nerd in the 2000s, way before Marjorie Taylor Greene was involved in politics and way back when she was involved in CrossFit and apparently adultery and cheating. Um, but like, she has nothing to understand from that. She has nothing to understand from motherhood and how um, there are many people who are mothers, many cisgender women who are mothers who cannot give birth, but they adopt or there are other people who they just take on as family. That is equally as valid, that is just as valid and gives you plenty to stand on and talk about and experience to talk about that Marjorie Taylor Greene also lacks. But your third point about will it matter to the Republican Party? No, because this is a party that doesn't like policies unless it's to aggravate people that they feel um, are getting too much in society because they watch TV. Not understanding that these are cultures that are marginalized and the few times they appear on TV are statements to that effect of marginalization and the TV and as in everything. But also that they, this is just red meat for them. They don't love anything else but getting to feel like, ah, you're sticking it to the person with COVID vaccines. Ah, you're calling them performative or whatever. They're just looking for that sound bite. And so I appreciate um, Maxwell Frost is like a really good um, upcoming front runner in the, um, at least the young blood in the house right now. And also Robert Garcia, who I've had looked under a microscope, microscope for the past couple of years, cause he's my former mayor. So I'm really glad to see both of them showing up in the space and they'll definitely be Democrats to watch for taking this strong stance here. Cause not a lot of people have to do it. You saw that room, it was really empty. So I'm glad they were there. Yeah, I'm glad they were there as well because these things that Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing, hijacking the mic, the conversation, holding these hearings that are absolutely nonsensical and a waste of taxpayers' time, it's something that needs to be called out for the record books. It needs to be shut down. There needs to be some documentation of the fact that Democrats didn't sit still. They didn't sit quiet. They didn't just allow the Republicans to do the US people dirty because that's exactly what's going on here. Especially having these hearings and conversations about COVID-19 rehashing these issues when really we need to talk about things that are more impactful moving forward, which may include protecting children with health and safety of the COVID-19 virus that has not suddenly just miraculously disappeared. We're talking about assault weapons and the fact that the school shootings continue to persist and yet nothing is done. And yet again, Republicans, even then they will sit and waste everyone's time. But I am very, very grateful that the Dems were in the room to speak truth to power. And so I am definitely glad we got to address some of those topics today. And it's all the time that I have for you today, but don't worry because there is plenty more time. Yeah, that's right, I've got some goodies for you of Senator Nina Turner. But before we go to those, Dan, do you wanna tell everywhere where they can find you? Yes, it's gonna be a really great interview with Senator Nina Turner talking to Ro Khanna and it's 
really good questions regarding our little senator situation we have going on right now, um, Congressman Ro Connor. But um, yeah, you can find me at youtube.com slash Dan from the internet, twitch.tv slash Dan from the web. Tonight, um, there's a lot going on in the media world. Steven Crowder is apparently getting a divorce, but Biden's also running. And I have a great interview with Matt Bender on tech and how it's crumbling. So uh, check that out, twitch.tv slash Dan from the web, youtube.com slash Dan from the internet. All right, very cool. Look at you, you stole my lines. Yeah, that's right. Senator Nina Turner is going to be sitting down with Representative Rokana of Cali. They're really going to talk about really what's on everybody's minds and about what hangs in the balance and is still hanging there. Oof, we're going to see how that'll shake out, but enjoy the rest of the clip and I'll see you tomorrow. While Senator Feinstein has had an extraordinary distinguished career, she's simply unable now to fulfill her duties. And it's sad to see. Uh, It's sad to see her in this state where she is missing votes, where we're not being able to confirm uh, judges because of her absence on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, And I just think uh, we should have someone in that role uh, who can do the job right now. So that was Congressman Connor saying, hey, we got to have somebody in the role to do the job. Both Senator Feinstein and the Congressman, they both serve the great state of California. And there have been rumblings about her illness. She even wrote a letter basically saying, hey, put somebody on the Judiciary Committee until I'm able to make it back. But Congressman Connor, as you saw in that clip said, Listen, hey, she can't fulfill those duties, so she needs to go. He's not the only one that's standing up, but he's one of very few standing up. And now there are people leveling the charge of sexism. So Congressman, that's a lot to have to take and the pressure. What made you decide to step up and say that this should be done? I'm certainly for the best, what is in the best interest of the residents or the citizens, the people who live in the great state of California, but also for the nation at large. People have known that Senator Feinstein has been unable to do her job for quite some time now. We've all been hoping she would make the decision on her own to step aside. I mean, she's missed 75% of her votes this year. But the trigger event for me was Senator Durbin saying that this is slowing down judges being confirmed. We have extremist judges in Texas taking away the abortion pill from women. We're going around the country making these speeches saying we're gonna stand up for women's rights. And then when we can actually do something, which is get these judges out of the committee, we're stalled because one senator isn't able to show up. Five judges weren't able to go through today in the Judiciary Committee because of her absence. They got seven through on a bipartisan vote, but five of them, they needed a Democratic vote and couldn't do it. And so I said, we've gotta get these judges through and we need someone to step in. And Congressman, did you find it difficult to come to that? Not necessarily difficult to come to the conclusion, but it takes a lot of courage to say that this should happen for the greater good. Now, the senator has said she's not running for reelection. You know, she's definitely had a lifetime of service. The fact that you're getting some pushback and others who have had the courage to say this, do you find that shocking that you would get some pushback given everything that you just laid out, the importance of judges? And my secondary question to that is why should somebody in Ohio care whether or not Senator Dianne Feinstein can fulfill her duties at this time? Well, I wasn't surprised and that's because you know the Senator Turner when those of us who stepped up for Bernie Sanders and endorsed him and certainly those of us who said we're gonna 
play a leadership role in that. And that's the biggest pushback I've ever faced in my political career. And so the, this pushback pales in comparison. It makes it looks like JV compared to the pushback we had with people taking a shot at Senator Sanders. Because Senator Sanders was talking about changing private insurance and making sure we took on big oil and took on corporate interests. And there was a lot of opposition. Now I knew we would get some pushback, but I guess that's given me much more of a steel spine and saying, if I think there's something that's right, I'm gonna stand up for it. And this time in private, I've had a lot of people say, thank you for saying something. I hope she's gonna do the right thing. And the reason people should care in Ohio is the single biggest thing President Biden can do between now and 2024, given that we don't have the House of Representatives, is confirm Democratic judges. We're gonna uphold voting rights, women's rights, and the Constitution. And every day, and I want people to really think about this, every day Senator Feinstein is in there means one less possible judge is gonna get confirmed in this president's term. And that the stakes are enormous. I think she should have stepped down regardless, but certainly in this environment on the Judiciary Committee, she should step down. And Congressman, to hear you say this pales in comparison, you're giving me flashbacks. I'm sure I can say an amen on that of all that we had to endure because we did in fact do the right thing by supporting, not only supporting Senator Bernard Sanders, but actually being a co-chair and being right there on his campaign every step of the way. Today is the 24th year anniversary of the Columbine shootings that happened on April the 20th in 1999. And since then, there have been far too many mass shootings in our country, including schools. And whether we're talking about Columbine or whether we're talking about just the recent mass shooting that happened in Nashville, Tennessee at the Covenant School. Why can't elected officials, particularly on the federal level, Congressman, and I sincerely ask in this question, why do they cower before the NRA? Why is it that any mass shooting, but especially the mass shooting of shootings of children, doesn't even move elected officials, particularly on the federal level, but it happens on the state level as well. When I was in the Ohio Senate, that gun lobby controlled those halls as well, and they still do. But why is it that the elected officials will not stand up to this lobby and do what most Americans want to have done, including gun owners? They want common sense gun reform in this country, but the NRA continues to be in control. And there was a quote by the leader of the NRA basically saying, you know, if you guys try to mess with us, we're coming for you. Not basically, that that's what the man said. It was a flat out threat. And I feel like the Department of Justice should come in on that. The threat was very clear. Well, it is beyond frustrating. It makes me angry, sad. Look, when Columbine happened in 1999, I was just getting out of college. And now, you know, I'm in my fourth term in Congress, and we still have the same issue. We can't, you know, Columbine was the murder, the killing of a dozen or so high school students. And we still are dealing in 2023 with shootings at school, with young kids getting shot because they go ring someone's doorbell in a neighborhood. Obviously, that having to do not just with guns, but with being black in in, in America. But the, the the point is, we know how we solve this. We know if we get assault weapons banned or passed, it will make a difference. How do we know? Because Bill Clinton did it in the 1990s, and the studies show that mass shootings went down. And then we repealed it. Uh, 10 years later when it's sunset and we didn't 
passing and mass shootings went up. So we've done the experiment. We know that assault weapons ban saves lives. We know that you're having a universal background check saves lives. We know that taking a gun out of the hands of someone who's made a threat or is a danger saves lives. And people are just craving to get this done. And as a result, we have gun violence being a leading cause of death for children. Yes. You talk to people outside the country and they can't understand it. They can't understand how in this country we allow this to continue to happen. Yeah, because we can't understand it either. And you know, Congressman, I, I I don't know why, what is it about the Second Amendment in your opinion? I mean, we have several amendments to the United States Constitution, but it is that one that people extremists, because the NRA and their ilk are extremists, they're unpatriotic extremists. And as far as I'm concerned, they have all kinds of blood on their hands. But what is it about the Second Amendment to the Constitution that they consider absolute, like more powerful in some cases than God, the way they act? Well, it's become a tool, I think, culturally and politically to get people riled up. But every amendment, every right, has limits to it. We know this, free speech, which we're both big proponents of, has a limit to it. You can't have speech that's gonna incite violence and cause bodily harm. Well, if you can't under the Constitution have speech that's going to kill people or incite harm, then certainly there has to be a restriction on unreasonable restrictions on guns so that they're not causing violence or harm on people who are innocent. You can't say, well, you can have restrictions on the First Amendment, but no reasonable restrictions on the Second Amendment. All rights have to be balanced so that your freedoms aren't taking away someone else's freedoms. And it's only the Second Amendment where we have this absolutist perspective, and that's not what the Constitution's supposed to be about. But this is not good faith arguments often on the other side. It's a reflexive sense where these people are afraid to lose their seats. They're afraid of a primary challenge, and that's what's going on. And the most frustrating point is they're like, well, it won't make a difference. It won't save any lives, they're bad people. Of course, they're evil people, of course, they're bad people. Of course, do I think we're gonna end all mass shootings if we pass this legislation? This legislation, no. But what if we just save a few lives? I mean, the point is in Congress, your job is to save lives, to help people. It's not to make the world perfect. And the reality is that by not doing this, this we know more people will die. That's it. That's it in a nutshell, Congressman. A masterclass on why this needs to happen. So we're gonna keep pushing it. A lot of people who work in this field every single day, activists and others who they have dedicated their lives to deal with mass shootings and trying to get military style weapons off the off the streets. And Thanks for listening to Unbossed. If you like the show, then you'll enjoy our other podcasts on TYT Network like The Damage Report with John Idarola, Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie and the Young Turks. Make sure to listen and follow, and if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating.